The first job of any leader at work and at home is to inspire trust. It's to bring out the best in people by entrusting them with meaningful stewardships and to create an environment in which high trust interaction inspires creativity and possibility. Stephen M. R. Covey, The Speed of Trust. Hey friends, family, welcome back to another episode of Intentional Living and Leadership with me, Cal Walters. If you're new, first of all, thank you so much for being here. We release a new episode every other Tuesday, and our goal in this podcast is to explore ways to live a more intentional life, to lead ourselves. We know sometimes the hardest person to lead is the person in the mirror, to inspire others, and ultimately to make the world a better place. I believe each person has a unique purpose and contribution to make to the world, and I hope that this can be a resource for you on your journey. Today, I am so privileged and honored to bring you insights from a true hero of mine, Lieutenant General Retired Robert Caslin, who currently serves as the 29th President of the University of South Carolina. Go Gamecocks. Before we get into the interview, let me share some of General Caslin's incredible background. General Caslin served 43 years in the United States Army. His military career culminated in 2018 as the 59th Superintendent, which is the President equivalent of the United States Military Academy at West Point. Under his direction as Superintendent, West Point was recognized as the number one public college in the nation by Forbes magazine and the number one public college by U.S. News and World Report. Through the establishment of Centers of Excellence at West Point, General Caslin connected the operational army with West Point research and intellectual capital. He refined West Point's leadership program by making professional ethics a priority and essential part of leadership and character development. He worked tirelessly to expand the diversity of cadets and faculty alike, and he dramatically expanded West Point's minority and women populations to reflect the demographics of the Army that West Point's graduates help lead. Working with the Director of Athletics, he revamped the athletic program, made it self-sustaining, and fielded 25 competitive intercollegiate teams. He created partnerships with the NCAA and Department of Defense to conduct research into preventing and treating concussions and traumatic brain injury that have led to significant improvements in prevention and care. He stood up the Army Cyber Institute to build expertise and Army leaders prepared for the new cyber fight and fulfilling a pledge he made soon after becoming the superintendent. He led a sweeping reversal of Army's football program and developed a culture of excellence through winning with character, culminating in Army's defeat of Navy in 2016 for the first time in 14 years, and beating both Air Force and Navy in 2017 to win the Commander-in-Chief's Trophy for the first time in 21 years. Before becoming the West Point Superintendent, General Caslin served as the Chief of the Office of Security Cooperation in Iraq, where he served as the Senior Military Commander in Iraq after the drawdown of U.S. and Allied Forces in 2011. Caslin held several other notable positions, including Commanding General of Multinational Division North, during Operation Iraqi Freedom and Chief of Staff of both the 101st Airborne Division and the 10th Mountain Division, where he also served as the division's Chief of Staff during Operation Enduring Freedom. He has also served in combat and overseas deployments in Operation Desert Shield, Desert Storm, Joint Task Force Bravo in Honduras, and Operation Uphold Democracy and the United Nations Mission in Haiti. He's a graduate of West Point, and he holds an MBA from Long Island University and a Master's of Science degree in Industrial Engineering from Kansas State University. He 
was also recognized with an honorary doctorate from Long Island University, and he is a member of the Kansas State Engineering College Hall of Fame, received a Lifetime of Service Award from the American Red Cross, was recognized with the Honorary Rock of the Year Award for his efforts in diversity as a superintendent of West Point. He also received the 2018 Gerald R. Ford Legends Award for Lifetime Service and was named the 2019 recipient of the NCAA Theodore Roosevelt Award, joining the ranks of Tony Dungy, John Wooten, and Presidents Eisenhower, Reagan, Ford, and George H.W. Bush. General Caslin also serves as the Special Advisor on Executive Leadership and Character Development at Higher Echelon. He's a nationally recognized authority on leadership development and the author of The Character Edge, Leading and Winning with Integrity, which is scheduled to be published in October of 2020. In this episode, we discuss General Caslin's why for serving, his philosophy on leadership, the importance of developing your team, how he leads himself, his morning routine, how to lead in uncertain times like we're experiencing in COVID-19, how failure and adversity have shaped him, his top marriage advice, his top parenting advice, among many other topics. You can find links to his book and show notes at CalWalters.com. .me, just my name.me. And without any further ado, please enjoy this interview with Lieutenant General Retired Robert Caslin, the 29th President of the University of South Carolina. President Caslin, it is an honor and a privilege to have you on the show, sir. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Cal. It's an honor to be with you. I'm really looking forward to this. Thank you. This is exciting for me on multiple levels. I'm a native of South Carolina. I grew up in Spartanburg and grew up a Gamecocks fan. And then also went to West Point, uh, graduated in 2008. You were the commandant. So in many ways, you were one of the first senior military leaders that I looked up to. And, and what a great example that you showed. But I'd love to start by asking you a little bit about South Carolina and uh, your life there. What has been perhaps one of your favorite things about living in South Carolina so far? Well, South Carolina is a nation unto itself. So <laughs> I love their personality. They have a unique personality <laughs> and they're true. not bashful about it as well. So they're not one to follow. They want to be a leader and they're proud of that. They're all Gamecocks and they're proud of being Gamecocks. Gamecocks are pretty aggressive fighters. Learning <laughs> about a, a Gamecock and they're proud to be that. And, uh, but they have a unique personality and they're fun to be around. And I love the people. The students are incredible. They're so loyal to be to this university and to be in Gamecocks, and you can see that loyalty even in the midst of this this uh, COVID nineteen crisis because they all miss the campus, they miss the, their friends and everything else, and they all want to get back so badly. Um, but I, I really love in South Carolina is just a flat, beautiful, beautiful state all the way from the mountains up there in the northwest uh, all the way down to the beaches, to the big cities of Columbia and Charleston, some of the nicest cities in the nation. Um, and it's got the tourist industry down there, some incredible civil rights history that's actually part of the, this history, and not to mention the Civil and Revolutionary War history as well. It's, uh, it's a hugely unique, beautiful state, and I'm very pleased to be here with my wife. Well, we're so glad to have you there. I know a lot of my family and friends will, were really excited when I told them I was going to be interviewing you. And, you know, it's, it's true, like most things in life, that over time I've started to certainly appreciate South Carolina in a way I never did growing up. So it's neat to hear you describe it. And I hope to get back there one day. I'd love to ask you, sir, so you did 43 years in the military, and now you continue to serve at the University of South Carolina. And I'd love to ask you about your why for serving. As you reflect back on your service and your continued service, 
what is your motivation for serving and where does that come from for you? Well, you know, I mean, from my faith background, there's a great verse that says the greatest among you is the servant among you. So, um, and it's all about servant leadership. I think most of the effective leadership, I, I, I like to think about it from authentic leadership, which is someone who's transparent with high values and has a strong ethic for caring. And servant leadership focuses on the needs of other people and takes away the needs of yourself. After I retired from West Point, after 43 years, I just did some consulting. And it was hugely unsatisfying because I was no longer in a servant capacity. And then I ended up working for a few months at Central Florida as an executive vice president. But just to get back into and not necessarily an academic environment, but an environment where you were able to serve and to deliver a product to somebody. Um, it, it, it really stirred in me the desire to continue in that era. So then I started throwing my name in the hat for uh, some of these other president opportunities and the president of South Carolina came about. And I'm hugely, I hugely love this job. I love the students that are here, the faculty, and the ability to connect with them and to serve them and to provide for them a product of which will change their lives and transform their lives forever and to be able to have the influence that you know people talk about legacies and people like to see their name on a building as a legacy i'd rather see a legacy as the people whom you had the ability to influence and to improve their life and to give them greater opportunities for hope in the future and that if, any, if there's a legacy it'd rather be the legacy of the people rather than your name on a, on a building or something but it's really all about servant, servant leadership, because the greatest of thee is a servant of thee. I love that. Have you always viewed service this, the same way, or has that changed over time? Well, I, you know, I started um, when I became a second lieutenant. I knew that effective leadership was caring. And I realized this was right after the Vietnam War and the Army was in a wreck. And there was the rift was going on and there were racial problems, drug problems, but in the midst of all of those problems, leaders who were effective were leaders who really cared about their people and developed a strong relationship. They didn't baby them. They found out what their need was. Their need might be someone to put an arm around them and walk them through a divorce or walk them through the loss of a child or something, but, or their need might be they needed a, a size 12 on their backside to get them moving and get them motivated again and get them focused on the right things. But whatever their need was, you know, that's caring leadership because you care enough to, to lead them. And I realized that as a, as a brand new Lieutenant or a company commander that, soldiers will or subordinates will respond to you one way on your turf on your time but if you really care about them you're going to find out what motivates them on their turf on their time and you're going to get involved in their lives and you're going to not demand their trust but you're going to earn their trust and when they trust you and have confidence in you because they know that their needs are paramount to your personal needs then they'll go to all corners of the world for you and they'll give their life for you so that you can serve their buddy again. I want to follow up on something you said there about caring. You know, one of the areas that I've gotten in trouble with, I think in the past with my leadership is almost being too nice or thinking that caring means you're always being nice 
or and potentially even a, per, a pushover. And your mind, is there a difference between being nice and being a caring leader who genuinely serves your, your subordinates and your teammates? Yeah, caring not only means compassionate and understanding, but it also means that you have high standards and you care enough of your subordinates to enable them to meet those standards. So the best example is, is just simple PT. If I've got some soldiers that cannot pass the PT test, I'm, they're going to learn how to pass the PT test. They're going to pass it, and I'm going to do whatever it takes for them to pass it. If you remember when I was a commandant, I had COMPT. COMPT was whoever failed the last APFT was going to join me three days a week at 530 in the morning for PT. And not only were they going to come with me, but I wanted a teaching point that their supervisor, their squad leader, their company commander, or whoever it was, all the way from plebes to firsties, were going to come and join me at 5.30 in the morning for PT. And they wrote a PT program, their supervisor did, and, and, then, and then it was cleared by the Department of Physical Education, and then they executed the PT program. Why did we do that? Because we cared enough about them. They knew that if they could not meet those physical fitness standards, not only did it put their graduation at risk, but it put their leadership effectiveness as a leader when they graduate at risk as well. So, you know, I mean, we're in the, in the Army, so we're in the crucible of ground combat. You need to lead, lead from the front, which means you got to lead physically. So, so, so cadets who had some challenges physically, I, there's my philosophy, I cared, I cared for them. I wanted them to be successful leaders. So they were going to get up early in the morning, three days a week. I cared for them, and they were going to get up in the morning at 5.30 in the morning and do PT with me, you know. But that's what caring is. It's, it's not coddling them or babying them is setting high standards but you lead from the front and help them to meet those standards um and other uh, the other way to do it is just throw the standard out there and if they don't meet it then you just get rid of them and i'd rather i'd rather develop them into a leader rather than just uh count on attrition and see who's going to make it who's not going to make it so is leadership for you in many ways helping people achieve their potential or more than they potentially even thought they could achieve? Yeah, leadership is enabling people to, to live a, a life of excellence. And to me, excellence is living, as you said, to the upper level of your potential. So when you're just, just think of your performance on anything on a bell-shaped curve. You know, you have average performance. Sometimes you're good. Sometimes you're not so good, right? So my belief is that everybody who lives a life of excellence ought to be performing to the up level of their potential. So on that curve, what that looks like is your two standard deviations to the right. For those of you who like mathematics, two standard deviations to the right puts you on the, on the right portion of that curve. Well, if you're on the right portion of that curve, you're probably going to get into areas that you're uncomfortable with or areas that you're less competent in and you're likely to make mistakes. But this is what the leader has to do. When you get in those particular areas, the leader's got to underwrite the risk of that mistake so that you use that mistake not as something that condemns you, but you use that mistake as an opportunity to learn and to grow. And if you're not afraid to go out there living up with your potential, make mistakes, learn from your mistakes, then you grow. It's like breaking a bone. If you break a bone and it heals and heals correctly, the bone becomes stronger where the break was than it was before the break. So when you go out there and make a mistake and learn from your mistake, you grow. And that's why you should be out there in those areas where you're at the brink of your potential. And then guess what? If you're consistently performing on the upper level of your potential and guess where average becomes, and that becomes a new average. So that whole curve starts sliding to the right and you become better and stronger and better equipped and stronger 
and then you become to the place where you you get to achieve the goals that you set for yourself. That's that's excellent. It makes me think of a John Maxwell podcast I was listening to the other day, and he said you should look around your team and put a ten on all of their foreheads. Because when you do that, it allows you to, instead of being suspicious of them, it allows you to see them at their best, as their potential, and you treat them accordingly, even subconsciously. Yeah, and your job is to enable them to get to that 10, to develop them. You know, when I was a plebe back in 1971, uh, life at West Point was miserable. They, and they <laughs> made miserable intentionally. Yeah especially for plebes. I mean, we got to do the brace thing and we got to eat the square meals and all that nonsense, you know, but the, what, the purpose of it was to set a high standard and to instill discipline, but it was leadership by attrition so that those who were unable to meet those standards and they made life as miserable as they could through yelling and screaming and stuff like that, then they left. So that was leadership by attrition. And those that survived were the survivalists. Yeah. You know, if you tried that leadership style in the United States Army, you, 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 <laughs> you, you, no one's going to follow you because that's not leadership and that's not how our soldiers expect leadership. That's not how subordinates expect leadership. So it doesn't mean that you lower standards. You set the same high standards, but instead of leadership by attrition, I believe in leadership by development, that a leader's responsibility is to develop somebody so that they can still meet that standard, but you provide the leadership that's necessary to get them there. So by putting a 10 on their forehead, you know that they have the potential to be a 10. You know that they have the potential to meet that standard. So do what you can, leader, to develop them to get to the 10. So in your mind, as you're developing people, is a big part of that taking ownership over the development? Because I think a lot of leaders tend to blame the people on their team when they don't reach their potential or when they make mistakes. And I think when you blame people, it seems to me, and, and I'd be curious if you agree, then you, ha then you are at least internally taking the ownership off of yourself versus if you view their development as completely on you, or at least mostly your responsibility, then you're going to do everything you can to help them get there versus shirking the responsibility onto them and blaming them. Yeah, when they succeed, the leader never takes credit, right? And then when they fail, the leader takes all responsibility and all, everything. So if I'm developing a subordinate and they don't meet the standard, it's my fault. So the first thing I look at, I look internally, and I say, what did I, how, did, how did I mess this up? And because what do I need to do? You know, and development is just not giving somebody a job description. Developing is not only giving them a job description, but coaching them and, and sitting down with them and showing them how you expect them to get there. And then to be able to assess and evaluate them. And this is the hard part because it takes some little bit of mental and moral courage to sit down with them and see, talk somebody in the eye and tell them you're not meeting the standard. You know, we, normally we don't have the courage or the time or whatever to sit down with somebody and say, here's what you're not meeting and here's why I look at it and this is what I need you to do. So that's part of development as well. You know, that's, that's doing the harder right to tell someone that they're not meeting the standard and, and why not and what they need to do in order to get there. You know, so that's part of development. It's just not just saying, here's what you got to do and just let them go on their own. You know, if you have a thoroughbred as a subordinate that doesn't need much coaching or mentoring, then no problem. But unfortunately, not everybody's a thoroughbred out there. So, sir, I want to ask you 
about how you lead yourself or how you've led yourself over the years? You know, another John Maxwell saying is that the hardest person to lead is the person in the mirror. And I'm curious, when you reflect back on all the success you've had, are there any habits or routines or processes or rituals that you think have really helped you lead yourself over these many years of leadership? Um, it's a good question. Well, I just think it's a lot of self-discipline. Uh, first of all, it's understanding who you are and what you want to be. Uh, then it's understanding the pathway to get there. And then it's understanding how you're going to hold yourself accountable. Or if you can't hold yourself accountable, do you have a partner that, that can hold yourself accountable? Uh, or someone who can ask you some really tough questions and, uh, and having the discipline to get there. So um, it, it's a combination of looking long-term and then it's a combination of looking short-term. But it's the development of a certain set of habits, daily habits. And those daily habits are the undergirding of a pathway that will lead you to a successful outcome. Um, sometimes that outcome is not the outcome you want. You know, my faith says, good Lord is in charge of all that anyway. So, um, you know, I trust that. But at the same time, I think it's important to have some character traits that will undergird you towards success. <clears throat> and, you know, I mean, so, so some of those character traits are, is obviously self-discipline. Um, and, 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 you know, we're all physical human beings, so we got to know what our body can take, what it can't take. So, so, your, so your body needs ways to deal with stress, and one of the best ways to deal with stress is through a good physical fitness program. If you're in the business of leading in hardships on the ground, then you ought to be, have a good physical fitness program so you can lead in the midst of uh, tough circumstances because the most effective leaders are leaders that lead from the front and share hardships. Um, and then there's, there's a set of disciplines to so whatever goals that you set for yourself that you have the discipline to achieve that goal. I always think that your character is always tested all the time. And you could be physically number one in your class, or you can be intellectually number one academically in your class. But if you fail on character, you just fail on leadership. All I have to do is just look at some very, very successful people, either in the army, in the military, whatever, and they have a character failure and they crash because, not because they weren't competent, but it's because um, they had a failure of character. And it's so important to keep your character straight. And, and one of the ways I try to do that is through my faith and in the morning, you know, having a quiet time and, and uh, just reflecting on well, who I am, what I'm, what I'm doing, and where I need to go and to um, you know, read scripture and things like that. And I think all that's tremendously important because it gives you the undergirding of why you have the discipline to do what you really need to do and why you have to have the character to be able to deal with some of the challenges. Character is also the internalization of values. So those values that you hold close are important and uh, um, those values are a result of your upbringing those values are a result of the people you hang around with those values are a result of the books you read and what you read on the computer screen and those values are tremendously important because your character is defined by those values so that when you're in a stressful situation your reaction in that stressful situation is not going to be necessarily what you think about what's right or what's wrong, your reaction is going to be the natural 
reaction of the values that you have internalized. It's like if I'm holding this cup of coffee and it's filled to the top and someone hits my hand or someone hits my arm, what's in this coffee is going to spill out whether I want to or not. When I'm faced with a compromising situation, my reaction, my initial reaction is going to be uncontrollable. It's going to just come out on whether I like it or whether or not. But whatever comes out is really the true manifestation of what I've internalized. It's really when you get a chance to see yourself and what your, your true character is really like and when you see yourself in really stressful type situations. So um, you want to, what you want to come out of that coffee cup is something that is that you're not ashamed of, something that is edifying and uplifting, something that will draw people, not to you, but draw people towards uh, the goal that is set for them. And especially in stressful situations, uh, you know, you want to be the, have the character be able to lead in that direction. Yeah, I think that's so important that we lead out of who we are and that we continue to cultivate who we are. What is your typical morning routine look like on an ideal day for President Caslin? What do you do in the morning to prime yourself for the day? Yeah, well, <laughs> all right. Um, so I get up at five o'clock, which means so the older you get, the, know, the more you know your body and what it can take, what it can't take. So my, I, I recognize that I need seven hours of sleep. So I, that means I got to be in bed by 10 o'clock. So bed by 10 o'clock, up at five o'clock, seven hours, that's, that's good. Um, first thing I do is uh, uh, get cleaned up, obviously, and then I sit down and uh, re, you know, I'll read some scripture devotion. I got a devotion book I work my way through and, uh, look at that. I look at overnight emails and then, um, normally about uh, 10 minutes to six, I jog down to the gym and then it, in the gym, I'm, it's, I'm there at six o'clock every morning, at least six days a week. So I do my gym stuff from six to seven, seven, come back, uh, I get showered, cleaned up and then I uh, eat some breakfast and I'm in the office before eight. So eight o'clock till maybe uh, six o'clock in the evening. And in this job, it's not right now because of the virus, but normally this job is a seven day a week job, 24 hours a day. So there's always an evening event plan. There's always a weekend event plan. And so as the president, you have the responsibility and a lot of, I mean, a lot of these evening events to be the leader of that event on top of that. So I try to tell my people who run the calendar is to, just make sure I'm home by eight o'clock so that I can wind down, have some dinner and, and get in bed by 10 o'clock so I can get my seven hours of sleep. So that's my typical day. That's great. What do you like to do in the gym? What is, if I were to come visit the USC gym at 6 a.m., what would I likely see you doing? Oh, well, I, I do some homemade CrossFits. So I've got a whole bunch of CrossFit routines. I've been doing this now. I used to run a lot, but my knees, as old as I am, can't let me run that much so i'd probably run maybe once a week on on the weekend or something like that but i'm in the gym doing some type of crossfit and i always do it i don't do it myself i do it with students i try to motivate the students to make sure they live a life of uh, exercise and one of the motivations i have is that um, if they do 10 workouts with me that i'm going to give them a, one of my coins presidential coins you know it's one of the coins that you have in the military so yes, so uh, and this thing has been a hit so anything <laughs> has demonstrated excellence, not only students, not only doing 10 workouts with me, but if they have accomplished something, they've been recognized for something in our faculty too. And when our faculty has recognized for excellence, I give them a coin too and present it to them. And, you know, this little three or $4 coin has just got great um, reviews from our faculty and our students. 
but it's a mo it's just one thing I can do, one little thing I can do to recognize excellence. But when students do 10 workouts with me, then they're going to get a coin. And it, every morning, I do it. I, I'm with students. I'm in there every morning, but I'm with students Tuesday and Thursday, and I get about anywhere from 20 to 30 students each, each day. So it, it's a lot of fun, too. I love that. I was actually talking to a friend yesterday who played Army football, and I was telling him I was interviewing you, and he said, oh, I remember General Caslin. There was this epic moment. He played special teams, and he made this tackle, and it was, I think, to him, one of his most pivotal moments as an Army football player. And he didn't, no one really noticed it, I guess, but he remembers you running up from the sideline and just congratulating him. And he, even to this day, thinks back to that moment and he said the, the next play, it was, a, it was a punt return, and he said he ran faster than he ever ran before because in his mind, he just knew General Caslin is watching me. And I think that you have, you seem to have done that. And I remember you doing that at West Point. You certainly did that as the soup. You have this kind of legend about you almost. And I think a lot of that comes down to your presence, your physical presence of just being present. But also, you're very approachable in a lot of ways, it seems. But you also have a calm demeanor. And that's one thing I want to ask you about. You, I, have, I have never seen you get rattled. I'm sure there are times where you do get rattled. And obviously, the Army teaches presence and composure and, and the importance of that. But is that something for you that your calm demeanor that you have cultivated over time or that you deliberately do? Or is that something that's just natural to you, do you think? Yeah, well, that's a great question. Um, it's easy, it's easy to kind of lose your temper and that accomplishes nothing. Um, the one thing you, that's beautiful about the army is you change jobs and you change working for people quite often. So you really work for some great leaders and then you work for some really not so good leaders. And I worked for a couple of pretty hostile leaders in my life. And I just know that that's not a good facet of leadership to to be hot tempered and lose your temper and yell and scream all the time yelling and screaming does not accomplish anything matter of fact the more intense it is the more the quieter it's necessary to become <clears throat> because as a leader everybody starts reflecting your personality whether you want to or not they just it's just that one of those natural sort of things about leadership is people start reflecting the personality of the leader so it's just tremendously important to be calm in special, especially in stressful situations. And then when you're calm, you can gather information, you can listen, you can understand. And you know, one of the most effective ass assets of leadership is understanding the environment, understanding the situation, the intended and unintended consequences. You know, and where you put pressure and the second, third order effects of putting pressure on that and what's the natural hierarchy of order. So when you understand all of that. I mean, you've got to be in a listening mode to be able to understand. And if you're in a transmit mode because you're hot-tempered, there's no understanding whatsoever, you know. There may be a time to, you know, kind of raise your voice a little bit to get some attention, you know, but that's normally done intentionally, not by habit, but just intentionally just to make sure people understand that this is a serious matter type of thing. Uh, but anyway, uh, it's not try not to get too excited. It's, it doesn't accomplish anything. And unfortunately, I'm, the older I get, the more experiences I've been around and the more experience you've been around, a lot of these 
crisis situations is nothing new. Like the crisis we're in right now, people say, wow, wow. You know, you seem like you know how to handle yourself in crisis. I said, well, I've been doing it for 43 years in the Army, so this is, I'm in my element, you know, because, <laughs> you know, because that's what, that's our life all, all the time. It's like a, a daily crisis over and over again. But I want to ask you about that. So we're obviously in a very unique moment, uh, really unprecedented. And you have so much combat leadership. And like you said, leadership just in high stress, difficult types of environments. And, and I would love for you to speak to the leaders out there right now who are leading during this time and maybe experiencing a level of stress and uncertainty that they've never experienced before. What advice would you give to them as they lead during these uncertain times? Yeah, well, first of all, leadership is, um, you, you have to be a leader and you got to be a calm leader. And the most important thing about leadership in a crisis is to, is to create and maintain hope. Because people in a crisis must have hope. If they, if they lose hope, then the things start unraveling fast. So the best way to get hope is to have, be a leader that they trust. If they trust you, then they'll maintain their hope. So how do you get the trust? The trust is through competence and through character. That you're a, a leader of great character, particularly in a crisis situation. <clears throat> and that you have the competence to get through there. But they also want to trust you if you care. If you generally care about them, if you generally care and understand the circumstances, then, then that caring aspect of leadership becomes tremendously important in building trust. So how do you demonstrate that you care? How do you demonstrate the things you're doing that illustrate your competence? And how do you demonstrate your character? And the answer is through communication. So in crisis leaders must communicate and the and the issue with communication is that it there's never enough it's like feeding the beast you have to you have to recognize who your constituents are both internal and external you got to find out what what information they're looking for and you have to deliver that information so as a president of a university i have internally students faculty and staff externally i have parents i'm one block away from the state house so I got legislators, I got the governor, I've got uh, uh, numerous senators, state senators and state legislators. I've got local leaderships, I got the mayor, I, you know, and, that, and matter of fact, the meeting I was on right before this one included the mayor, I got the board of trustees, I had some trustee members that were in on that meeting. And the, because these are my constituents and you have to be able to communicate with them on a constant basis. One of the people, then you gotta determine how you communicate and what's your delivery method social media maybe it's formal media but there are also other media sources out there what story are they telling and how do you how can you best influence the story that they're telling as well because they're the ones that are reaching a lot of your constituents and will be by their story will be able to demonstrate that you're someone to be trusted or not so you know that that's how i connect the dots so it starts with hope which translates to trust which translates to character and competence which includes caring, which includes communication. And that's what leaders got to do. That's what leaders have to do in, in a crisis. A lot of leaders are making difficult decisions right now, maybe more difficult decisions than they've ever made before. You've made a lot of decisions in your experience in the military. And now what is your framework for making decisions? Um, 
Well, first of all, you have to understand it. So you have to understand the situation and the, and the scenario. And like I was saying, you got to understand what the natural hierarchy of order is. How is it? How did the crisis or the situation alter the natural hierarchy of order? What is the goal and objective that you want to get to? And then once you understand that sort of situation and scenario, then you say, okay, if this is the goal, this is the objective. What are the what are the resources necessary to get there? What's what is the way to get there? And then what are the resources necessary to get there? So to said another way is what's your strategy? So a strategy is nothing more than your outcome, your ends. How do you get to your outcome, your ways? What are the resources necessary to execute your ways, which are means? So end ways and means. So that's what a strategy is. So making decisions really is do you have a clear understanding where you want to go? Do you understand the environment that's around it that's impacting that? What is your way to get there? And then um, then what are the resources necessary to do that? Sometimes the way to get there, there are multiple ways. So the decision to be made is which way do you want? You know, and the best way to do that is with a decision-making model that has a set of criteria, you weigh it against the criteria. And you get input and listen to a lot of people too. So, you know, any decision is not made a time from it autonomously by ourselves, decisions have to be made with the advice of many other people. Yeah, that's really helpful. Sir, it's easy to look at your life and think this guy's hit home runs his whole life. He's never made a, he's never made a mistake. He's never experienced adversity, but I'm sure that's not true. Like most great leaders, you've, I'm sure, experienced your fair share of failure and setbacks. How has failure shaped you? Um, it has made me more determined and focused. Um, it's a lesson I learned out of West Point by playing football, actually. <laughs> so, uh, so I remember on my, my sophomore year, I didn't make the varsity. I was on the JV time, but I was on the scout team. I was a, a, a offensive center on the scout team at 205 pounds. The, op the option of me playing major college football division one was slim to none at 200 pounds for an offensive lineman. And um, matter of fact, when the season was over, one of the coaches said, Bob, you're never going to make it. So you might as well just kind of hang it up. And when, and when I heard that, I had, I was so motivated. I was so mad. I said, I'm going to prove this guy wrong. <laughs> There is no way I'm going to quit. I don't care what it takes. There's no way. Um, so with stroke of luck, the starting center ended up, they needed to move him to defense. The starting position was wide open. I busted my chops in the offseason to, you know, gain a little bit of weight, got up to 210, and uh, got my speed down, mental toughness down. And in spring practice, my sophomore year going into – my junior football, I ended up earning the starting position of center. Wow. So I started my entire junior year, my entire senior year, <clears throat> and uh, but it was that it was that lesson of you know I could have quit. I had the opportunity to quit, and I refused to quit. So in the midst of adversity, who are you? And adversity is interesting because adversity. 
in my opinion, really defines your character. If you really want to see the true makings of somebody, see how they act and react in the midst of adversity. Not that you should throw that at them, but at the same time, adversity not only defines your character, it refines your character. As iron sharpens iron, so does one sharpen another. So you throw your character in the midst of adversity, it's either going to burn it up and destroy it, or it's going to refine it and it's going, you're going to come out stronger. Uh, so, you know, even the circumstances coming here at the University of South Carolina's president were ugly. And, I mean, things that they were saying and doing, you know, was just really, really hurt. And, uh, but I, I said that it just motivated me more. You know, because I come from a culture of character, when people start destroying your character, they think you're going to, because you come from a culture of character, and character is important, when they start destroying your character in a public format, you they expect you to vacate because your character is important to you. But was not the case. Instead of trying to make me vacate, it just made me all the more determined to persevere. And not only to persevere, but to earn their trust. So how do you earn the trust of someone who is a critic so that they now trust you? And it's hard, you know, but you got to figure out through leadership to earn their trust. You got to build bridges and knock down walls and make converts one at a time. And ironically, in the midst just yesterday, day before yesterday, the faculty was one of the ones that, man, they voted no confidence, you know, when I got here because I was just not grown up in the system that they're used to, you know, being an outsider. And uh, in the Senate faculty meeting the other day, they they passed a special resolution of a vote of confidence in the leadership that their president and the president's staff was, was doing. So talk about converts, you know, that's a convert. But that's what motivates me. What motivates me is, is, the, is the adversity, the challenge. Um, and so I had that particular challenge, and, you know, I'm – Glad to do it. I had a lot of different options. Not a lot. I had a few options. A number of them much more financially appealing. But when I realized that the real true challenge was to earn the trust of people that didn't like you, that was the challenge that really drew me here to South Carolina. Hmm. I love that. So as we're wrapping up here, the last few minutes, sir, I got a few just kind of lightning round questions for you. Feel free to pass on any of these. You, uh, do you have any marriage and parenting advice for those that are out there listening, trying to navigate the busyness of a career and, you know, the commitments at home? Well, I just celebrated my 43rd anniversary yesterday. <laughs> Congratulations. That's awesome. Wow. And, and I love my wife more today than I did the day I married her. Um, you know, I... I guess the, the book of for parenting and the book of being a husband is really, uh, the, to me, has been the scriptures on how, how much I've really loved my wife and nurtured her and and served, was a servant husband to her and, um, and to my children to develop them as they are, who they are, and not who I wanted them to be, but to develop them who they were. And got three incredible young 
not, they're, well, they're not too young anymore, but <laughs> great, great sons and families, and I'm very blessed. Um, so the advice I would have is, um, you know, you're in a partnership relationship as a husband and as a wife, and that partnership includes the needs of your husband or your wife. And it's important to understand those needs and to meet those needs. One of the books that really transformed my life, my marriage, was a book called His Needs and Her Needs. And I forgot who wrote it. I'll remember it. But it's a great book because it, link, had, yeah. it has the five needs of women and the five needs of men. And they are not the same. The five of the five, but neither one of the five have anything in an overlap. And so it's important to understand the needs of your spouse because your job is to, as the husband, is to fulfill those needs. It's servant leadership. It goes back to what you asked before. If I'm going to be a servant to my wife, I want to know what her needs are, and I'm going to make sure that I'm in there fulfilling those needs. And those become important. They become a very high priority in my life. You know, the army kind of pulls you away from meeting the needs of your children and meeting the needs of your spouse just because of the time and commitment. But when you realize that challenge and that challenge exists, when you realize that, that's half the problem. Because there's going to be times when you have to deploy, but not all the times. And there's going to be times when you have to uh, go in the field and go to JRTC and NTC, but not all the time. There's going to be times when you have to work late, but not all the times. And when it's not all the time, you ought to shut the book at four o'clock or at five o'clock and then get home and have dinner with your kids and your wife and sit down with her after dinner with a cup of coffee and don't say a word and just listen to what she has and how her day went with the kids. Because she spent the entire day talking with three-year-olds and four-year-olds and she really would love to have a conversation with you on the adult level that's it really needs to, you know, and I know you just, your communication requirements exceeded your demand by one o'clock in the afternoon. And the last thing you want to do when you get home is to sit down and listen some more. So you'd rather put your feet up and just kind of read the newspaper or something like that. Uh -uh. You got to understand what the needs are of your family, your kids and your spouse and, and your job as a dad and husband is to meet those needs. So his needs and her needs, and and it'll make for an incredible marriage and incredible journey with your spouse and with your kids. Well, thank you for that. That that really helps me, and, and I'm sure it helps many of those listening, because it is tough sometimes to to meet those demands. And there's nothing more important, I think, we'd all agree, than what's at home, uh, sir. As it's like a balance, you know, it's, it's not one or the other. It's not my career or my family. It's a balance. How do I achieve a balance? And the best way to achieve that balance is when the opportunity is there, take advantage of the opportunity. And then especially when you're not on those deployments or those field exercises, get home early and, um, and be with your family. Absolutely. Sir, I want to give you just, uh, if you could tell us before we leave here about your book that is coming out, The Character Edge. Hey, oh, I love, I'm excited about this book. So, I mean, I'm excited about character. I love character. Character is the most important, the most effective element of, leader, of effective leadership. So I'm writing this book with uh, Dr. Mike Matthews. Mike Matthews is from the Behavior Science Leadership uh, 
School of the United States Military Academy, West Point. And so he's a civilian uh, faculty member there and as a former superintendent. So I, I'm writing life stories and he's writing theories. So he is taking my stories and integrating them into the theories there of character and how character is developed and how it's sustained. How do you regain it back when issues uh, take place? And it's been a really joy to do it because I have the opportunity to write not only about um, my experiences of character issues in the Army, but have the, have a great opportunity to interview the, the Secretary of the Veterans Affairs, the Chairman and CEO of Johnson & Johnson, some of the challenges that they have gone through themselves. <clears throat> on the sports side, I was on the Board of Governors for the NCAA during the men's basketball crisis. Had a, so got some conversations with character issues in there about that and even some character issues within higher education, now that I'm in higher education. So there's lots of examples and lots of stories and opportunities for you to really reflect on what's your character and how can I develop that as iron sharpens iron. And where can people find that, sir? Well, it's coming out in October of 2020, and, uh, but it's on Amazon right now, so you can pre-order it on Amazon right now. The character edge leading and winning with integrity. Great. I'll put links to that on my website, calwalters.me. Sir, this has been so much fun for me. This has really been the opportunity of a lifetime and I appreciate your leadership and I wish you well and I'm praying for you and the entire University of South Carolina family during this time. And I'm confident that with your leadership and the great team you have there that uh, you'll weather the storm. Thank you, Cal. It's been great being with you as well. Hey friends, I hope you enjoyed that interview with President Kaslin. One of the things he said at the beginning of the interview that really stood out to me is the greatest among you is the servant among you. What a great reminder for me, especially as we try to lead during these uncertain times, during these difficult times, may we look outward and deliberately look for ways to serve our families, our communities, our neighbors, our teams, and especially those most vulnerable. If you enjoyed this interview, please share it with someone, share it with someone in your network, if you'd like to support this podcast, you can help us grow and get more exposure by rating and reviewing this podcast on Apple Podcasts. Thanks to everyone that has already done that and helped us rank in the top 35 of all management podcasts on Apple Podcasts. I appreciate that so much. You can also go to my website, calwalters.me. You can add your email there for email newsletters and future updates on the podcast. And let's go out today with a renewed focus on service. Life is short. Let's make it count today, friends.